This morning we're picking up in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, and the title of this sermon here is The Marks of a True Christian. The Marks of a True Christian. You see, we live in a time where the term Christian has lost its original and narrow meaning, and it's taken upon itself a broad meaning. Mormons label themselves as Christians. Roman Catholics label themselves as Christians. Jehovah's Witnesses label themselves as Christians. People even call someone who simply grew up going to church a Christian. Some might be labeled a Christian because of the identity of their parents. Their parents were Christians, and so that automatically makes them a Christian. And this person then would be labeled as a cultural Christian. A cultural Christian. In fact, that term has been thrown around a lot. The famous atheist and author of The God Delusion, Richard Dawkins, in a 2013 interview, identified himself as a cultural Christian. Then in a 2014 interview, he labeled himself as a secular Christian. Today, people are labeled as evangelical Christians or a charismatic Christian or even a Christian nationalist. You can believe nothing that true Christianity teaches, and you can live your life in a way that looks nothing like a true Christian is supposed to live, and yet you can still take upon yourself the label Christian. You don't have to belong to a church. You don't have to believe the Bible. In fact, you don't even have to be born again, and you can still take on the label Christian. But that wasn't so in the early church. In fact, the term Christian was given to believers in the city of Antioch as a way to identify those who truly followed Jesus. Luke tells us in Acts 11.26, And when he, Barnabas, had found him, Paul, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. That term Christian there means of the party of Christ. Or someone bearing the name of Christ. And it was originally used as a term of mockery and ridicule for those who were truly born again and who truly did follow Christ. Later on in Acts 26, Paul was confronting King Agrippa about his beliefs. And Agrippa responded mockingly to Paul and says, In a short time, will you persuade me to become a Christian? This name, Christian, was a term that was given by the world to believers in Christ as a way to mock 
and ridicule true believers in Christ. Peter also says in 1 Peter 4.16 that if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. And as the world labeled believers as Christians, that meant hatred and persecution from the world. And for true believers, this might this became a badge of honor. It was a badge of honor that they would actually be worthy to suffer for the name of Christ and be called a Christian. But today, in many ways, it's lost that identity. Many people have taken on the name Christian without being a true follower of Christ and without being willing to suffer for Christ. And so we might ask the question then, well, what is a true Christian? What is a true Christian? If a true Christian is not someone who's just born into a Christian family, or someone who grew up going to church, or someone who has lived their whole life in a so-called Christian nation, what then is a true Christian? Well, Paul's going to answer that for us in the first 11 verses of Philippians 3. If you remember from a few weeks ago, Paul has given for us models of true servants of Christ. We looked at Timothy and we looked at Epaphroditus, who have become for us models of what it means to be a Christian who is living and serving Christ. Here in chapter 3, there's a shift in Paul's letter. And as we look here at the first three verses, we're going to see the marks of a true Christian. And so if you haven't already, I'd encourage you to open your Bibles to Philippians 3. And we'll begin in verse 1, and I'll read our passage for us. Philippians 3, beginning in verse 1. Paul says this, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, And it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, Paul here is writing to believers in Philippi from jail in Rome. He's been locked up in prison, and he's there in Rome. Epaphroditus and Timothy are there with him, and it'll be Epaphroditus who will take this letter that Paul is writing and deliver it back to the church in Philippi. And as they open this letter and they read it, they would come across our text, and they would notice there in chapter 3 and verse 1, in which they wouldn't have had chapters and verse numbers like we have in our Bibles today. It was simply one long letter. But they would have come across this text right here before us. And notice, they would have seen that Paul says, finally. Finally. Now, when you hear me say the word finally in a sermon, what do you do? You pack up, right? It's time to go. (laughs) It's over. Why? Because you know that I'm coming to the end of the sermon. 
But you'll notice that we still have two more chapters to get through here in Philippians. And so why does Paul say finally here? Well, this is simply a word that is used as a transition. It's a transitional word. It's the Greek word loipon, and it means as far as the rest is concerned, or in addition, or furthermore. And that would be a better way to translate this verse, to say in addition or furthermore. Why do I say that? Well, we still have 44 verses left in this book. And so Paul is obviously not wrapping up his letter here. He's not telling them it's time to close your Bibles, I'm about done. It's not what he's saying here. But he's saying, I'm giving you some additional information. He's just told the Philippians why he has sent Epaphroditus back to them. This is why Epaphroditus is with you. He almost died in his mission, in serving me. And so I have decided to send him back to you. I know that you were concerned for him, and he's very concerned for you. And so that's why you're seeing Epaphroditus there with you. Now, in addition, I have more to say to you. That's what Paul is saying here. That's what he's saying when he says, finally. But notice then what Paul calls them. After he says, finally, he calls them what? My brethren. My brethren. This means that he's writing to his brothers and sisters in Christ. This is his spiritual family. These are true believers in the church at Philippi. Notice he also says at the beginning of verse 3, he says, For we are the true circumcision. We are the true circumcision. You are my brethren, and we are the true circumcision. So what, what is Paul doing here? He's separating out the true believers from those who are false. He's making a distinction here. I'll touch on what Paul means by the true circumcision in a minute. But what Paul is doing here is he's identifying the true believers from the false. There are true believers in Christ, and there are those who think they are saved, but who are not. They might call themselves a Christian, but in reality, they are far from Christ and salvation. And so in these first three verses here, we're going to see three marks of a true Christian. Three marks of a true Christian. First, we see that a true Christian rejoices in the Lord. A true Christian rejoices in the Lord. Notice again what Paul says there in verse 1. He says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Now, as I've said before, joy is one of the main themes of Philippians. In fact, if we could boil it all down to one word, take take the book, the epistle of Philippians, and boil it down to one word, we could say that one word is joy. Joy. It's a book about joy. Sixteen times in this letter, Paul uses the word either joy or rejoice. Why? Because true Christians are known as those who have joy. We have joy. Four times in this epistle, Paul commands the church to rejoice because this is something that true Christians are to do. We have joy. 
and therefore we are commanded to rejoice. And as I've said before, happiness is not the same thing as joy. Happiness is not the same thing as joy. Happiness is a term that's related to our happenstance or our happenings. It's the feeling that you get when things are going your way. They're in your favor. And so you become happy based upon the happenings around you, the circumstances that you're in. You might get something new, and that makes you happy. You get that feeling of happiness because you've gotten something new, or when something happens that goes your way, you feel happy about the situation. But joy in the true believer's life is not based upon happenings, but it's based upon the promises of God. Our joy that we have is based upon the promises that God gives us in His Word. And notice what Paul tells the believers to do. He commands them to rejoice. This is a command that's given to the church. Can you command somebody to be happy? You can, but it'll be pretty hard for that person to be happy when something doesn't go their way, right? Those feelings and those emotions will take over, and that happiness will be really hard to produce in that situation. But joy is not a humanly produced emotion. But as one commentator says, it's an act of the will in choosing to obey God. It's an act of the will in choosing to obey God. You see, joy is a fruit of what? The Spirit. You see that in Galatians 5.22. And who are the only ones who can have the fruit of the Spirit in their lives? True Christians. Only true Christians. Unbelievers cannot produce joy. Sure, they can be happy depending upon their circumstances, but they cannot have the fruit of the Spirit produced in their lives. They might be happy for one moment, but when their circumstances aren't going the way that they would like them to go, they're no longer happy. And they cannot have joy because true joy is a fruit that's produced only in the life of a believer as we walk in the Spirit. And we're walking in the Spirit. No matter what circumstances we are in, we can have joy. And think about Paul at this time and the circumstances that he is in. Would we say he's in a happy place? Happy circumstances? Being in prison in Rome, locked up, chained to a Roman guard? He's not. But he has joy. He has joy because he can walk in the Spirit. He has the fruit of the Spirit working in his life. And so Paul can command the Philippians. And by implication, he commands us that we are to rejoice. Listen, no matter what the circumstances you are in, you can still have joy. You can have joy. In chapter 1 and verse 4, Paul says this, I pray with joy. 
Paul and the circumstances that he's in, he prays with joy. In chapter 1 and verse 18, speaking about those preaching the gospel from envy and strife, thinking that they're causing him distress in prison. Even in the midst of all of that that's going on around him, of people who are causing, trying to cause him distress while he's locked up in prison, Paul says, and in this, I rejoice. I rejoice. Because even though they're trying to cause him distress, the gospel is still going out. They're still proclaiming the gospel and preaching the truth. And Paul says, then I rejoice. I rejoice. In chapter 2 and verse 17, speaking about pouring out his life as a drink offering, he says, I rejoice. And then in chapter 4 and verse 10, after receiving the gift from the Philippian believers, he says, but I rejoice in the Lord greatly. And just as Paul rejoiced in the midst of his difficult circumstances, he commands the church to rejoice as well, because that is what true Christians do. We have joy. And we are to be those who walk in the Spirit and have joy produced in our life and therefore rejoice. But notice he doesn't just say rejoice, but he commands them to do what? Rejoice, notice this, in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Charles Spurgeon said, It is your privilege, it is your duty to rejoice in God. Not in your health, your wealth, your children, your prosperity, but in the Lord. And as each person in the church is rejoicing in the Lord, what does that produce? produces unity, which is another main theme of the book of Philippians. As each one of us is rejoicing in the Lord, the church will be unified. It'll bring us together and we'll have that unity. But listen, how can we rejoice in the Lord unless we're actually in the Lord, right? We've got to be in the Lord. You see, unbelievers are not in the Lord. They're trying to earn their way to God in the flesh. They don't have the Spirit. They're in the flesh. They're slaves to sin and unrighteousness, and they cannot please God, Romans 8, 8 tells us. It is impossible for them to please God. But we have been set free from sin and death, and all that the flesh produces. And we are those who are in the Lord. We have the Spirit of God living in us. And that should then cause us to rejoice. An English preacher once said, Joy is not gush. Joy is not jolliness. Joy is perfect agreement with God's will because the soul delights itself in God Himself. You want to have joy? Delight yourself in God. Delight yourself in Him. And no matter what the circumstances are that we're in, we are those who can have joy and are commanded to have joy as we rejoice in the Lord. Now as Paul continues on in verse 1, you'll notice that he begins a new sentence with a new theme and a new tone. 
And this leads to our second mark of a true Christian, and it is this. A true Christian not only rejoices in the Lord, but also rejects false teaching. A true Christian rejects false teaching. Notice what Paul says again in the second half of verse 1. He says this, To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. Now when we look at this and we see this phrase here that Paul uses to write the same things again, we might ask, well, what has Paul already written that he's writing again? Right? If he says to write the same things again, is there something that Paul has already written that he's going to write to us again? Well, there's a lot of debate about this, this phrase right here among scholars. There's a lot of debate, but I don't believe that Paul is talking about something that he's already written to them in this letter. But in this writing, I believe he's telling them something that he has previously told them. There's something that he's previously told them. He is now telling them for a second time, or possibly even a third or a fourth time, something that he had previously told them when he was with them in Philippi. What he is about to tell them is not something new. And what is he about to tell them? He's about to tell them to beware of false teachers. It wouldn't be something new that Paul would say to the Philippians. You can imagine, you can picture Paul there in Philippi sharing with the Philippian church and telling them, beware of the false teachers. Paul does that a lot. He calls the church to watch out for false teachers. Now quickly look over at verse 18 and notice what Paul says there. Here's why I say this. In verse 18 he says this, For many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross. What is Paul saying there? I often told you about these people. I told you about the false teachers. I warned you about them. And so when Paul was there in Philippi before, he had told them about these people who were enemies of the cross. And so for him to write again here, he's saying, I'm writing something to you again. I'm telling this to you again, something that I already told you before. You see, he warned them about false teachers and their false teaching. Notice what he says there as he's writing this. He's talking about writing this letter and he says that it is no trouble to me. Back in verse 1, he says it's no trouble to me. Why? Why would it be no trouble for Paul to write to the Philippian believers to tell them to watch out for false teaching? Why is it no trouble for him? Because that's what the shepherd does, right? That's what all shepherds do. Shepherds are called and commanded to warn the people of the wolves. In fact, that's what Paul even did with the the elders of Ephesus. He He gathered them together to himself and he said, watch out, guard and protect the flock. In fact, wolves are going to come and try and devour the sheep. And you know where they're coming from? From in your very midst. Watch out. Beware. 
Beware of the wolves. Beware of the false teachers. That's what a true shepherd does. He warns the sheep. And then notice what he says about this warning that he's about to give to them. He says it's a safeguard for you. That word safeguard in the Greek is a, a compound word. Os follow. Os follow. A meaning not, and spalo meaning to cause to stumble. Paul wants to make sure that they're standing firm in the gospel and not stumbling over false teaching. Just as he said back in chapter 1 and verse 27, he says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. Stand firm in the gospel. And so he warns them about these false teachers. And notice what he says in verse 2. He says, beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. Notice what he calls these false teachers. Now, in order to understand the strength of this warning, we must understand a little bit about the culture back then. In our culture, we love dogs. We name them all kinds of cute names. And we get more. We bring more of them into our homes. And we love them. And we care for them. And we put them on special diets. And treat them as if they're one of our family members. That's not how dogs were viewed in Paul's day. In those days, dogs were without a home. They were without an owner. And they roamed around in the streets feeding on garbage. And they occasionally attacked people as people passed by them. They were despised by the people. Dogs were despised by the people. And if someone was called a dog, it was used as a derogatory term. Because that's how dogs were viewed. Paul calls these false teachers dogs. Now who are these false teachers that he's talking about? Who are these dogs that he's referring to? Well, these are men known as Judaizers who taught that circumcision and keeping the Mosaic law was necessary for salvation. They taught a false gospel of faith plus works. Faith plus works. And so Paul calls them dogs because they're preaching a false gospel. But notice what Paul calls them after he calls them dogs. He calls them evil workers. Evil workers. Men who are working, who are doing a lot of things out there for people, teaching a lot of things to people. And he says, the work that they are doing is evil. It's evil. You see, all other religions besides biblical Christianity are centered around works. They're all centered around works. You can somehow work your way to heaven if you're good enough. And you can ask people that today in evangelism. You ask people, so why do you think God should let you into heaven? Well, because I'm a good person. I've done good works. People think that they're going to get to heaven by their good works. 
And that was true of these Judaizers in Paul's day. And they think that their work of teaching of faith plus works is a good thing. They think that they're doing a good work in teaching faith plus works. And therefore, to them, they would see themselves as good workers, doing good work. But Paul says that their work isn't good. He says it's what? It's evil. It's evil work that they're doing. And that's true of the nature of all false teachers. They aren't working for something good. They're not doing anything good. The work that they do is evil. It's evil work. They're agents of Satan doing Satan's work. In fact, Paul speaks about them in 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen, where he says this, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. And what are their deeds? They are evil. They're evil. What's Paul saying about these false teachers, these Judaizers? He's saying that they are agents of Satan. They're agents of Satan, and they do evil work. The nature of their work is not good. The nature of those who are false teachers on our TV screens and all over the internet, it is not good work that they're doing. It is evil work that they are doing. In fact, they're agents of who? Of Satan. They're agents of Satan. Then there's a third thing that he says about the Judaizers in verse 2. He says that they are the false circumcision. The false circumcision. Now this here clearly identifies these false teachers as Judaizers. These men were what we would call legalists who denied salvation by grace alone through faith alone. Instead, they added the law to faith. They added works to faith and said that it was faith plus works. Now, what's he talking about when he says they're the false circumcision? Well, we have to understand a little bit about circumcision. Circumcision has been around since the days of Abraham. And it was given as the sign of the covenant between God and the Jews in Genesis 17, where God commanded that every male boy was to be circumcised on the eighth day. And this became a very significant sign, really the identity for the Jews. In fact, Jews were even referred to as the, the circumcision or the circumcised, and Gentiles re were referred to as the uncircumcised. And so it became a sign, an identity between Jews and non-Jews, between Jews and Gentiles. And so the distinction was made by this sign of circumcision. 
Why did God give this sign to the Jews? What was the purpose behind the act of circumcision? We know that it was to signify, to symbolize God's covenant promise with Abraham, the land promise that he would give with Abraham. But there was a, some other perp- another purpose behind the act of circumcision. It was to protect from disease. It was to protect from disease, and not just to protect from disease, but as one commentator says, circumcision graphically illustrated man's depravity. It illustrated man's depravity, which is nowhere more manifest than in the procreative act, because it is then that the sin nature is passed on to a new generation. Circumcision was a symbol picturing man's need to be cleansed from sin at the deepest root of his being. The bloodshed involved in the physical act of circumcision could symbolize the need for a sacrifice to accomplish that cleansing. And so the act of circumcision was not meant to just be a ritual but it was to be an outward sign of the inward heart. Similar to our baptism today. It's an outward sign of an inward heart. And it's a graphic illustration which symbolized the cleansing of man's heart from sin. In fact, God said to Israel in Jeremiah 4.4, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart. You see, God wanted the hearts of His people in faith. Because salvation was never earned by obedience to the law or by becoming circumcised. That wasn't the purpose of it. In fact, Abraham was saved before he was circumcised. In Genesis 15, 6, it says, Then he, Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he, God, reckoned it to him as righteousness. That's Genesis 15. But the sign of circumcision wasn't given until Genesis 17. And so it was never intended to be a means by which someone is saved. But in Paul's day, it had become an outward ritual in which they thought it was required for salvation. It was a work. And it became a ritual that was really no different from the other pagan rituals of that day. And so you can see why Paul would be upset with these Judaizers who are teaching that you have to uphold the law in order to be saved. Or to say that you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. He says that wasn't the purpose of it. And that's a work. That's something then that man has to do in order to get to heaven. It's a false gospel. And these Judaizers were preaching a false gospel. And so Paul calls them the false circumcision. Now what's interesting here is that if you study the Greek behind this, when Paul uses there that word for false circumcision, in the Greek it's actually the word that means mutilation. It means mutilation. Paul won't even use the standard word for circumcision when referring to these Judaizers. But instead he identifies them with mutilation. 
Paul speaks of the Judaizers over in Galatians 5.12, and he says this, I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. I wish that these false teachers would just mutilate themselves. What Paul means by that is if they think that the ritual of circumcision is somehow going to please God, then why don't they just take it to its ultimate extreme and just mutilate themselves? Paul happy with these false teachers? He's not. You notice the tone in Paul's voice? Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. He goes from rejoice in the Lord... In verse 1, to this strong language of beware of the dogs and the evil workers and the false circumcision. One commentator says the strength of his language leaves no doubt as to how Paul views these dirty, devilish, dangerous individuals. Listen, is Paul serious about false teachers? He's very serious. Very serious. And what do true Christians do with false teachers? They reject them. They reject them. And that might sound harsh in our tolerant, accepting, inclusive culture. But listen, the reality is truth and error don't mix. It's like oil and water. They don't mix. Truth and error don't mix. We speak the truth in love as our desire for them is that they would repent of their sin and trust in Christ. But we don't tolerate false teaching or false teachers. Church, we can't. We can't tolerate it. You see, true Christians are those who are able to discern truth from error because as Jesus said in John 10, 4, that his sheep follow him and they know his what? His voice. The true sheep know the voice of their shepherd. True Christians will be able to recognize the truth, embrace the truth, and reject false teaching. And so, true Christians not only rejoice in the Lord and reject false teaching, but third, and finally, but don't close up your Bibles, <laughs> true Christians repudiate the flesh. True Christians repudiate the flesh. Look at what Paul says in verse 3. Notice he says this, For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Notice Paul now differentiates between the false circumcision and the true circumcision. And again, what Paul does here in using these two words for circumcision, he actually uses two different words. He used the word for mutilation in verse 2, but here in verse 3, he actually uses the Greek word for circumcision. And by using this word, what Paul means here is that true 
Christians, the true Christian is the one who is circumcised in the heart. In fact, turn turn over in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. Let me show this to you. In Romans chapter 2, Paul is addressing this very issue of circumcision with the Jews. He's talking about the Jews who rely upon the law in order to save themselves. But in Romans chapter 2 and verse 28, Paul says this, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. What Paul means here by Jew is that he is one, this Jew here is a true child of God. This is the true child of God. And a true child of God is not one who is born a Jew or goes through some Jewish rituals, but is one who is right with God in his heart. In his heart. It comes down not to the outward symbol of circumcision, but it comes down to the heart of the person. The true Christian has been cleansed inwardly. The cleansing has happened inwardly, in the heart, through faith in Christ. Not because of some outward expression done in the flesh. As one commentator says, For Paul, circumcision is a matter of the heart, not the body, and is found in repentance and faith, not the sharp edge of the knife. A circumcised heart is what God wants. A cleansed heart. And that's a heart that trusts in Him alone for salvation. Not in the flesh. Now turn back to Philippians chapter 3. Notice our text there. Let me show you what this looks like then. What the circumcised heart looks like. The cleansed heart looks like. Notice in verse 3 that Paul says that those of the true circumcision are first, they first worship in the Spirit of God. They are those who worship in the Spirit of God. Listen, a true Christian is a worshiper. A worshiper of God. The word worship is the word latreo, and it means to render service. To render service. And notice that this worship happens in the Spirit of God. This describes a person person worshiping as they are prompted by or filled with the Spirit of God. That's what a true Christian is. Somebody who worships in the Spirit of God. You see, worship is not just the act of praising God or singing hymns like we do in our worship service. Worship is not just driving in the road putting on some Christian music and singing songs. But that word worship there means to render service. Worship involves the whole life of the believer as the believer walks in the Spirit of God. And it involves living a life of obedience to God. 
It's what a true worshiper does. A true worshiper lives in obedience to God. In fact, Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 12. Where he says, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. That's a true heart of worship. Worship is living a life of obedience to God. Rendering service to Him. And it's out of a heart of love for God that we do that. Because we love Him. We will obey Him. In fact, isn't that what Jesus said? John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You'll keep my commandments. And that act of obedience is worship unto God. It's worship unto Him. Not so that we can be saved, but we do it in response to the salvation that we have been given by Christ. We obey Him because we've been saved by Him. We obey Him because we love Him. We desire Him. And what Paul is doing here is He's actually distinguishing the rituals of Jewish worship from the true worship of Christians. That's what Paul is doing here in our text in verse 3. He's distinguishing the rituals of Jewish worship from the true worship of Christians. He's making a distinguishing remark here. A distinction between true worship and false worship. How does he do this? Well, the Jews taught that worship or service was only done as externals and only done by those who were in high positions in Israel. Those are the only people that could actually worship God or render service to God. Only those who were in high positions in Israel. And so for Paul to say here that we, meaning true Christians, worship, that we, true Christians, render service to God, this would have been offensive to who? To the Jews. Wait, you mean we renders? No, no, no. Worship is not for, that's what the high people do. Paul says no. That's what we, as true Christians, do. We render service unto God. We worship Him. And they would have said that this worship, the Jews would have said that this worship was only done by Jews. And definitely not by who? By Gentiles. Definitely not by Gentiles. But who does Paul imply when he says the we? Both Jews and Gentiles. All Christians, whether they are Jew or a Gentile, are to worship God. Worship is not just some external ritual done by the flesh, but it comes from the heart of those who love the Lord. 
whether they're a Jew or a Gentile. True Christians worship God. We worship Him. And not only do true Christians worship, but second, we glory in Christ Jesus. We glory in Christ Jesus. That word glory there describes boasting about what a person is most proud of. And it can be used in a negative sense for proud self-confidence. To glory in something or to boast in something. Somebody glories in themselves. They're boasting. It's proud self-confidence. But it's also used in a positive sense as it is here to describe a believer's joyful, exalting, or boasting in Christ. We boast in Christ. You see, the Judaizers were glorying in who? In self. In self. But the true Christians glory in Christ. And he's saying here that true Christians don't boast in self, but we boast in Jesus Christ. You see, a Jew's physical circumcision cannot save him, and neither can his work, so that no one can boast. That's a false gospel, to think that somebody can save themselves by their own works. If somebody thinks they can do that, then they can boast in themselves, right? Look at what I've done, God. Paul even addresses this in Ephesians 2.8.9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. None of us are going to be able to stand before God one day and say, God, aren't you glad that I? None of us will. Paul even says in Galatians 6.14, he says, But may it never be that I would boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul says, may I never boast in self. But if I'm ever going to boast, if I'm ever going to glory, I am going to glory in Christ. I am going to boast in the cross. See, a true Christian does not boast in the flesh, but boasts in Christ and in the work that Christ accomplished to save sinners like us. You want to boast in work? Don't boast in your own work. Boast in the work that Christ has accomplished for us. Which is exactly what Paul reiterates at the end of verse 3. Notice what he says there. And put no confidence in the flesh. Put no confidence in the flesh. The flesh here represents man's fallen, unredeemed self. And Paul is saying here that the true Christian has zero trust in the flesh. Do you hear that, church? Zero trust in the flesh. It's what the Judaizers were doing. They had lots of confidence in their flesh, in their work. But Paul is saying here that true Christians don't do that. We don't boast in self. We understand the depravity of our own heart and realize that there is nothing that we can do to save ourselves. In fact, Paul even said in Romans 7.18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Nothing good. So how could I put any confidence in that? I can't because I'm not good. 
We understand that there's nothing good in our flesh and that we can only be saved by truly repenting of our sin and putting our faith in Christ alone. Because there's nothing good in us. Therefore, nothing for us to trust in. In ourselves. Zero confidence. And so a true Christian repudiates the flesh. In closing, a lady was arguing with her pastor about this matter of faith and works. And she came up to him and she said this, I think that getting to heaven is like rowing a boat. One oar is faith and the other is works. If you use both, you get there. If you use only one, you go around in circles. Her pastor replied and said, there's only one thing wrong with your illustration. Nobody's going to get to heaven in a rowboat. You see, there's only one good work that takes a sinner to heaven. And it's not our own good work. It's the good work of Christ on the cross. Christ who lived a perfect life and then went to a cross to die for sinners like us. You see, there are many people who think that they're going to get to heaven, but who aren't. Why? Because they aren't true Christians. They aren't true Christians. And they don't have joy because they don't have the Spirit of God in them. They don't reject false teaching because they don't know the voice of the Savior. And they don't repudiate the flesh because they think that by their flesh, they are going to get to heaven. But that's not a true Christian. And if you're here and you think that if there is something that you have done that is good enough to get you to heaven, I'm here to tell you, you've believed a lie. Your good works cannot save you. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned. And that our good works are like filthy rags before a holy and righteous God. There is nothing that you can do to save yourself. No good work that you can do to save yourself. But you must fall at the mercy of Christ. In repentance of sin and faith in Him. And if you do that, if you turn from your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ, He will save you. He's a good and gracious Savior who came and accomplished the work that none of us could do. And He did it by going to a cross for us and dying on that cross and raising again three days later. And he's alive today and he commands you to turn from your sin and believe in him. And if you do that, you will become a true Christian. A true Christian 
who will live a life of joy and who will reject false teaching and who will repudiate the flesh as you live your life in worship to our great God, just as true Christians do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the amazing truth of the gospel and the work of Christ and what He has done to accomplish salvation for us. Father, I pray for anyone who is here this morning who thinks that somehow they are going to get to heaven by their good works. Father, I pray that you would break the scales off of their eyes, that you would give them ears to hear and eyes to see the truth of the gospel. That they would realize and recognize the depravity of their own heart. And that they would put no confidence in their heart. But that they would repent of their sin and put their trust in Jesus Christ alone so that they could be saved and be a true Christian. Father, I pray for those who are here this morning, those of us as a church who are true Christians. Lord, I pray that you would help us to live lives that rejoice in the Lord. Help us to walk in the Spirit and produce the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and on it goes. Lord, we thank you for the joy that we have in Christ. Father, I pray that you would help us to continue to reject false teaching and to warn those who are believing in the false teaching and that we would put zero confidence in our flesh so that we might live our lives in obedience to you, bringing all glory and honor and praise to your name and your name alone. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.